0: The Death of Jesus. It was now about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed. His last the Centurion seeing that he had, what had happened praised God and said surely this was a righteous man and when all the people who had gathered in to witness this sight saw what took place they beat their breasts and they went away but all those who knew him including the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. What's the other one? Is that it? No, that's it, yeah. May God bless this this message to us. Mm -hmm. Thanks, George.
1: These uh, palms are a funny thing, especially if you haven't been to a church that has them. (laughs) And, uh, well, at least they seem like a funny thing. You know, that we, we wave them around and uh, say, Hosanna, Hosanna. If you haven't been in a church that has these before, it's because if you haven't um, picked up from various things, today is the Sunday before Easter, and we, it's often called Palm Sunday or Christ the King Sunday. Uh, hence the palm leaves. When I was at the florist picking these up, I actually wondered about getting something else. You know, like something like, you know, baby's breath because it looks nicer and it's cheaper. Um, but there's something not quite right about baby's breath Sunday. So I, get, but I then I thought, well, if we really want to increase attendance, we could use leaves from a hemp plant and have cannabis Sunday, right? Advertise that on Facebook. Hosanna in the highest, right? <laughs> or even better, I guess we could also cut bananas in half wave them around, and then have banana split Sunday. Oh, I had to do a dad joke. I had to do a dad joke. All joking aside, for those of you unfamiliar, this Sunday before Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday, it's when many churches celebrate the day that Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, uh, entering into his final days of his life. Um, We call it the triumphal entry, because as Jesus rode into Jerusalem riding on a young donkey, this large crowd of people are shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew expression, which means save. Come save us. And Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed, be, blessed is the king of Israel. These were things that you would cheer for a king. A king as they rode into a city in victory. And in celebration. But these were things that the Hebrews would not just sing for any king. But for, of course, a Jewish king. A Jewish king who was from the true line of royalty. An ancestor of their famed King David. So these were cheers of triumph for a triumphant king. And part of the celebration of the king entering into the city Included spreading cloaks on the road, and then, of course, uh, cutting these leafy branches off of the trees. And this is what the Gospel of John tells us, as if you haven't guessed it already, it tells us that there are palm branches. The other Gospel writers don't tell us what kind of tree it's from. But, of course, by the time that John wrote his Gospel, palm branches were actually well-established as a symbol for Judea. It had, and it had been used in triumphal entries in the past uh, when the enemies of the Jews had been kicked out of Judea earlier uh, in their history. And so here we see in this story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the crowds using these palm branches to celebrate a coming king, an ancestor of David, entering into Jerusalem to bring what the Jews expected of Right. What they expected from a long hope for Messiah. Messiah is a word for anointed king. And so to keep it easy, I'm just going to keep bouncing back and forth between those two Messiah, anointed king and the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Uh, and in English is a good translation or s- fairly good is to say anointed king. And what what are the expectations that the Jews had for their anointed king? There were lots, and depending on what group of Judaism you're in, you had different ones, but there were two main that kind of covered all different parts of Judean thought. One was that they would bring military victory over their oppressors. And in this case, military victory over the Roman oppressors, and that they would send them all back to Rome and restore their land to them. The second thing that anointed king was expected to do, not in order, but at the same time, was to rebuild and to restore the temple. The temple was the center of Jewish worship, and they believed that the presence of God dwelled in the midst of the temple. And so the temple was essential for the Israelites, and for the Jews, um, t- to be restored. So this was a key part of what this re- anointed king was supposed to do. So these are the hopes that this crowd had as they were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, save us. Blessed be the anointed king, the long-waited-for Messiah. Hosanna, come, set our people free in military victory and restore the center of worship in the temple that the glory of God may return and restore glory to Israel. All of this is wrapped up in these few phrases of, of cheering. These are the hopes they would have had for their their hopes and expectations they had for the Messiah, their anointed king. But then, as we know, flash forward a couple days to Good Friday, and we see the same man hanging on a cross. He is not defeating, but he is being defeated by the Romans. He's dying at the hands of those who were oppressing the Jews, dying the death of a failed revolutionary leader. As George read, it was about noon, darkness came over the whole land until 3 the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and jesus calls out with a loud voice father into your hands i commit my spirit when he says this when he had said this he breathed his last this is the epitome of what a failed revolution looks like this is the epitome of failure in the eyes of the Jews from what they were hoping for on Palm Sunday. <clears throat> their expectation of a promised king were far from fulfilled in this man who dies on the cross. Jesus did not fulfill their expectations of the Messiah to come in military victory. And ushering in God's justice, justice through the defeat of the removal of the oppressors. Instead he died at their hands. And the expectation that the Messiah was going to restore or to rebuild the temple, instead, in Jesus' ministry, he talked about tearing it down and leaving it in rubble. What's even more is here at, this moment of his, at the moment of his death, this very important religious symbol in the temple, a large curtain, was torn in two. Now, we could spend a whole Sunday talking about the significance of the curtain, um, and I really wanted to squeeze this stuff in here, but we just, we'll just go there another time. But for now, it's enough to point out that an important part of the Jewish temple worship in the curtain was destroyed. It was a significant piece for them. And Jesus, it was destroyed. This was a clear sign of Jesus' failure to fulfill what was expected of the Messiah. Instead of restoring the temple, Jesus wrecked it. And lastly, there was one more expectation that the Jews had for their Messiah that is important to note, and it's actually more of something that they didn't expect. As Christians, as people who know about Jesus and who believe in Jesus, we believe Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Messiah, the anointed king. We believe that part of that is his divinity, right? He is God. He's fully God and fully human. But for the first century Jews, there wasn't an expectation that the Messiah was going to be divine. We think that's just the obvious part of it. But when we read the Old Testament, anytime it talks about the Messiah' or anointed king, there is no assumption that this king will be divine will be God. That is something that Jesus, again changed the expectations of the Jews. The expectation was the Messiah would be an ancestor of King David, so therefore one of David's sons. And so when Jesus, uh, whether you, Jesus was, of course, a a son or child of David line, whether you follow the lineage through his mother, Mary, or through his father, Joseph. And we actually see Jesus challenge this assumption, expectation of the Jews earlier in the Gospel of Luke. When he asks the religious leaders, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? They ask, he asks them this, and they don't have an answer. And so Jesus quotes a psalm in which the author, King David, calls the Messiah Lord. So the King David is calling the Messiah Lord. So Jesus asks the question, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? He says, you would never call your son Lord. You would only call the Lord. Lord. And so by Jesus's logic, he's saying that even though it's expected the Messiah will be a son of David, because the Messiah is David's Lord, he can't just be a son, but he's also the Lord, the Messiah, therefore, is actually God. So when we talk about... uh, um, the expectations of the Jews. And, and, and we can look at the Old Testament and wonder how, how do, J- do those in the Jewish faith not see Jesus everywhere. It's because to them Jesus isn't in there. That's not part of their expectation. But we need to be open to, for us. For Jesus is actually changing our expectations of who God is. And of what our king is to look like and to do. This is also something we as Christians believe, but it's helpful for us to be aware of this as we read the Scriptures, is it shows us just how much Jesus' message was considered blasphemous. He's a failed revolutionary who calls himself God. But it also reminds us of the intimacy between Jesus and God the Father. Something else in Jesus that is not common is Jesus regularly addresses God as Father, and he teaches us to pray that, but, and we take that for granted today, and we read that back into the text. But this is not something that was common. It was very uncommon for a first-century Jew to call God Father. Jesus is claiming an intimacy, and then he invites us into that intimacy by calling God Father. And so here on the cross, Jesus prays, What is actually an intimate prayer to us, it feels like it's just language we use, right? Father God, Father God, right? We say it all the time. It's just language we use. But here is this intimate prayer, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And this comes even after Jesus had prayed. So remember, uh, if you've heard the story, the night before he was killed, Jesus is praying in a garden, and he prays that God, the Father, would take away this cup to take this thing coming before him, to actually prays, to take it away, but not my will, but yours be done. And so if you remember, as we come to the cross, Jesus had asked that the Father would take this cup away from him, and God didn't. And even after Jesus' journey led him to this place of suffering, humiliation, and death on the cross, yet his intimacy with his heavenly Father remains. God did not pull him out of the circumstances. God didn't even change the circumstances. God left him in it. And instead of going, God, what, why are you doing this? He still has this intimate trust and prayer and giving the wholeness of himself to God into your hands I commit my spirit once again as we've already seen before Jesus speaking here to God the Father on the cross through the words of a psalm and this is this is from psalm 31 in you lord i have taken refuge God. This psalm, like many psalms, is a song of desperation, but it's also a prayer of trust in the midst of deep sorrow and death. By praying this prayer, and this is a prayer that would have been said in all Jewish households. This, you know, it may have even been the type of thing that that uh, some. I've read some authors I read on this. Wondered if this is even the type of thing that you know that uh, parents would teach their children as they're going to sleep, you know, into my ha- into your hands, so- same ways that some of us were raised with that old uh, um, saying, um, "As I lay me down to sleep," kind of a prayer, right? Into your hands I commit my spirit, and by praying this on the cross. Jesus commits his spirit to God. Committing, uh, here, the word is commending, is an act of putting oneself into the care or the protection of someone else. To entrust oneself completely to another with no reservation and no hesitation. And then to commit one's spirit, this word is the word for breath. Luke is actually giving us a play on words here. Before Jesus' last breath, Jesus entrusts his breath. One's breath and spirit were not just some kind of disembodied sense of spirit, like some of us were raised to think of spirit as just this part of us that's, you know gone, like it's not attached to our body, right? But for them, the breath was actually would actually be an, is an embodied thing, and this is language our culture is starting to take back in, because we had lost it is it's actually this embodied idea of the breath which god put into clay is the life in the body think of it like the breath which comes as you breathe and you feel the muscles in your chest and your lungs right rising and falling you can feel your chest going up and down. It is an embodied reality of our being, is our breath. And so Jesus, to commend his spirit or his breath, was this holistic relinquishment of all of who Jesus was to God, his Father. And again, this speaks of the the deep intimate relationship Jesus had. There was a complete trust, even with all that he's gone through, even if what's to come Even into death itself, he is placing himself in God's hands. He is putting himself into the care and the protection of one who allowed him up onto the cross in the first place. He is yet he is in God's hand, and he does it with no reservation or hesitation. This kind of entrusting, of submitting, of relinquishing of self, speaks both uh, of the one entrusting themselves, but also of the one to whom they are entrusting. So in order to trust, so for us, in order to entrust yourself to someone, you need to be willing to take that leap of faith that they are trustworthy in the first place, right? By putting your life into their hands that they care for you and not cause you harm, That they will not neglect you or reject you. That they will neither slowly drift away nor quickly abandon you. But too many of us have been wounded by others in whom we've put our trust. Whether it be family or friends, spouses, governments, institutions, or churches. And when this happens, many of us will blame ourselves. We blame ourselves for entrusting ourselves into the wrong hands. And I just want to pause to say, if you have felt that way, I want to assure you that it is not your fault. The person you, to, who trusts another is not to blame for trusting. The harmed is never the one to blame for the harm. It is the person who is untrustworthy and his wounding is at fault. And so if that is something that you carry, I encourage you to bring it to God and to seek um, to find the freedom uh, of blame that is not yours to carry. The To whom we entrust ourselves is very important. And with humans, of course, we can never really sure, right? There's always risk. But God, on the other hand, I believe, is truly trustworthy. I mean, Jesus was God, right? He had more to lose. If you think of it this way, he had more to lose than anyone By putting himself into the hands of the wrong people. But because he knew his father was trustworthy, he entrusted himself to the father, even to the point of death. Yet, of course, for us, God does not always feel trustworthy. I myself see the pain and the brokenness of the world, and I wonder if God is good, then where is he? Why is this happening? This is why I think it's important, and this is my wife's words, it's important that our vision of God matters. Jesus' vision of God was such that he would trust his own divinity with God to the point of death. This vision of God, we see it throughout the, uh, the scriptures, and particularly in the book of Acts, as the followers of Christ continue to share this message, um... One such story is in Acts 7, uh, verse 59 to 60, where it says, so uh, Stephen, a follower of God, um, was going to be uh, killed for his faith. And it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's vision of God was one that he could entrust himself to Jesus, even when it took him to his death. And it's pretty cool, too, also to see that Stephen is praying almost the exact same prayer as Jesus did, except in this case, he's praying it to Jesus uh, instead of to God the Father. A lifelong challenge for all of us who seek to know God is to continually be open to have our vision of God expanded, have it matured and grown. If you think that you've figured God out, if we think we figured God out, if I think I have figured God out, I'm infinitely wrong. Because <laughs> God is infinitely more than everything that I understand about God. In the same way that the Jews had all of these expectations around what the Messiah would be to be like, we too often have expectations and assumptions about God. And that Jesus challenges us in these assumptions. Jesus did not meet the expectations of Messiah, an anointed king, a victorious king, a temple restorer. In fact, he has done the exact opposite on a lot of these things, yet scriptures tell us he is truly the king. In the same way, he does not meet our expectations when our expectations are different than who God is. Our expectations that if we put ourselves in Jesus' hands, that then therefore everything should just go happy and smoothly. That if we entrust ourselves to God fully, our finances will increase. Our lifespan will lengthen. Thomas Green, a Society of Jesus, which, uh, which are the Jesuits, he has a really great quote speaking about Jesus' prayer in the garden. He says this, Jesus teaches us to say, thy will be done. If we are honest with ourselves, we know that most of the time, what we really say is, my will be done. My will be thine, O Lord, which in not oldie English, my my will be yours, right? Where oftentimes we ask that God's, that the will we have would be the same as God's. That is, we make up our minds about what is really best, a job, health, security, love, and then we beg the Lord to bring about what we want. Prayer as a means to accomplish our ends is indeed of very limited relevance. God being God simply cannot be manipulated to our ends. My will be yours, O God. (laughs) If our vision of God is simply like a vending machine where we put in our prayer and push the button and out comes what we ordered, if this is our view of God, then Jesus of the cross makes no sense. It is a humiliation. And Jesus was wrong to entrust himself into the hands of God. So if we believe, though, that Jesus did entrust himself into the hands of God and still died, we have to wonder, was Jesus wrong to entrust himself? But perhaps it is not he who was wrong. But the crowds at the triumphal entry who want to force a kingdom upon the other nations, who is wrong? Perhaps it is our expectations that are wrong. Our expectations that a Christian, a Christian nation will be more just <laughs> and more loving. Our expectations that our schools would be better if there were prayer in them. Our expectations that if I just pray hard enough, if I pray long enough, if I do it right, then my wealth is going to increase. All of my problems will go away. But in trusting, but what, but if Jesus is not wrong, what what if Jesus is not wrong, then Jesus does show us the way. And what is the way? I think it is that God is trustworthy no matter what it seems like, even if it leads us to death. That even when things happen which go against our own will, God is still worthy of our surrender. God is still worthy of our letting go of our controlling grip. He's worthy of our releasing and relaxing ourselves into the trustworthy arms of God. Entrusting our breath into the hands of God isn't to say, if I pray, my pain will just go away. I won't have any pain or financial trouble or spare. We live somewhere between trusting God to take care of us and provide for us, which God calls us to have faith in, We we live sorry, we live in this space of trusting God to take care of us and provide for us and to be faithful, but not that God would be our errand boy boy who just does whatever we want and whenever we want it. It is trusting God's goodness and provision even when we feel like we have been hung out to die. Perhaps not removing us from the situation, but to be working in us and in others to be trusting God, to be working to redeem situations that are not born of God's manipulating everything to cause these terrible things to happen. But situations that are actually born of the world's brokenness and pain into which God longs to bring hope, healing, and redemption. So what are the areas in your life where it is hard to say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done? Where is it hard to let go and entrust something to God? For me, it's my children. I didn't even have to really think and pray about that one. Especially in the midst of hard times when they are hurting or disappointment, disappointed or in pain. All I want to do is fix everything for them just to take them out of their pain. And I get so overwhelmed by their pain, I can't even fathom how God might be in the midst of it working to redeem something, working to heal something, because I'm so caught up in it and I'm holding so tightly to them. And I miss the gift of pausing, of taking a breath and praying, Father, into your hands I entrust my kids. I miss the opportunity to have my expectations of God change from an errand boy To a king who would die for me, who would die for my children, who would die for our world and for the cosmos. Who or what is it that you have a hard time entrusting God with? As part of our responding time, we're going to sing a hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. But saying, It Is Well With My Soul... Or loving Father God, I entrust myself into your hands. This is not the same thing as saying it is well, this is good, right? It is not the same thing as saying it's all okay when things are terrible. In the face of evil and pain and death and oppression, of kids being murdered in schools and here in Toronto being murdered on the subway, prejudice and racism, we don't say and we shouldn't say it's all okay or that it'll just all work out for good. The Bible doesn't do that, especially in the Psalms, especially in the Psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. The Bible gives us language to express the reality of our situation with the reality in our hearts. Where things are terrible, call them terrible. When God seems silent, cry out in anguish. Not to be crass, but when things suck, the Bible calls us to call them suck. Right? This sucks. It sucks that kids are being shot in schools. It sucks that women are being oppressed in Afghanistan and Iran. These things suck. For us, to just say, oh, it'll be okay, right? That's not what the Bible tells us to be honest. It gives us language to say, this sucks, but you are with me, and I entrust myself to you. This sucks, but you are in the world, and I'm going to... Have a step of faith that you are working even if things don't turn out the way that I want, that the world want, that justice would want, or think that they should. It is also to say, I trust you to be working even when by all appearances I don't see it. Just like Jesus hanging on the cross, by all appearances was the failure of a loving God, yet we know it was the greatest moment of glory for a loving God. It is hope that there is something beyond these last gasps of air, of the pain and the oppression that God is neither causing nor indifferent to, but that God is actually working to redeem and bring goodness into. It is a hope, and I believe that it is a sure hope, that there is no place better to surrender our lives than to the God to whom Jesus prayed, while hanging on a cross with his very dying breath, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. This is not easy, and while we are completely dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in us to say this prayer and to have this hope, um, I'd like to offer one possible prayer that at least I personally have found helpful in me uh, opening my hands and releasing my grip into God's hands. And it is simply a simple prayer called a breath prayer, which we've done many times here at Spring, using these words, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. A breath prayer is simply the idea of of, uh, having a short prayer, uh, a short phrase that we repeat over and over. It's not to put yourself in some sort of trance, but it's simply to help us to focus uh, and keep our minds singularly focused on God. And the way that a breath prayer works is as you breathe, you pray some of it as you breathe in, pray some of it as you breathe out, just to your natural timing of your breath. Breathe. So in this case, Father, into your hands. Father, into your hands. When with your breath, I entrust my breath. I entrust my spirit. Father, into your hands. I entrust my spirit, allowing the spirit of God to focus us, to restore to us the peace which Jesus longs to give us. It doesn't remove us from the circumstances, but it lifts us within them. It doesn't change the circumstances, but it changes us so that we can be in the circumstances in a different way. And have an expectation that God is present in a way that perhaps uh, our longing doesn't doesn't match our longing, but matches who God is as a great and loving God who would die for us on a cross. So let's just take a few a seconds to pause, and if there is something you have in mind that you want to uh, release to God, um, I'll pray this in my timing of my breath for a couple, but then stop, obviously, because that doesn't help you because you have different lungs than I do. So let's pray. Jesus, we come to you as our God who died, who goes against all expectations for what religion should be. But yet goes beyond our expectations for what love and grace can be. And so we offer you ourselves. We place ourselves into your loving hands. Taking a step of faith that you are who you say you are and can be trusted. Father, into your hands. I entrust my spirit. Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. Jesus, we offer ourselves to you. Thank you for your Spirit's presence within us and amongst us and between us. Help us to live in surrender. Placing ourselves into your sure and trustworthy hands. Amen.